0: True Love. Chapter 2 Communism and Buddhism. Immediately following the Second World War, in August 1945, the Vietnamese army led by Ho Chi Minh seized control of Vietnam, declared independence, and formed a government. Their biggest mistake was to persecute and even murder hundreds of leaders, both those who had cooperated with the French colonial regime and those who had fought with them against the French, but had not joined the Communist Party. As a result, many strong and good-hearted people formed a force against them called the Nationalists, who later were supported by the French. Because my father had worked as a house designer under the French regime, the new communist government arrested him in September 1945 together with all former employees of the French region. At the same time, my eldest brother Hung joined the Viet Minh People's Army, the Communists, and my mother was left to care for the family alone. In that same month, the British, under General Douglas Gracie, arrived in Vietnam to disarm the Japanese on behalf of the allies. Gracie helped several French army units land and hit them with his own British troops. He then gave the order to free all French prisoners in Saigon and he armed them. In October, the French General Leclerc arrived in Saigon with an army of 35,000 to rec- recolonize Vietnam by force. My family received an order from the People's Committee of the Communist Party to leave Binchê City, as the French were attempting to recapture it. My eldest sister, Xuân, contacted those who had boats for rent and arranged for us to go from village to village with all our possessions, until we finally arrived at our grandparents' home in Andi. After being detained for three weeks, my father and 17 other prisoners were freed by the communists. A hundred other prisoners, including the husband of my great school teacher, were taken away and executed. My father was able to join us in Andy. When the French troops returned, the communists withdrew to the jungles. And by 1946, Vietnam had two governments, the nationalists supported by the French and the communist guerrillas who controlled the remote villages. By 1947, the French army had to come had come to Andi and they controlled the village by day while the Viet Minh ruled at night. The French arrested and openly shot in the marketplace, those they believed to be Viet Minh, why the Viet Minh kidnapped and murdered those who they suspected of working with the French. My father had to live day and night hiding in his rice field or at one of his former tenants' former home in order not to offend either side. Having seen so many innocent friends killed by the Communists, Father did not want to join the Communists, but he did not want to cooperate with the French either, as they too were cruel and violent towards those they suspected to be Communist. In May 1948, a pro-French government was formed in Saigon. And our family returned to Bencha City for more safety. Our savings had run out, and my mother and sisters could not could no longer support us by sewing and baking. Shortly after our return to Bencha, Shuung died from an appendicitis attack. I loved and admired her so, and it has always pained me that he, she died at such a young age. My brother Hung left the Viet Minh in 1948, resumed his study in Saigon, and eventually went to Paris and received a degree in engineering at the University of Paris. Nghiep, my second brother, also went to Saigon and later to the University of Paris to study engineering. Engineering but in his second year, he quit and became a nightclub singer. For most Vietnamese families, becoming a singer is considered a disgrace, and my father stopped supporting him. Still, my brother persisted, and finally, our family had to accept his decision. He has turned out to be a very successful singer, and like father, an oak tree, a strong support for the whole family. It was said that if a girl was from a good family, honest, and well-educated, she could marry well. And in those days in Vietnam, a girl needed to know French to be considered refined. As I was growing up, the tradition against girls receiving an education became less strong, and my father was able to send his five youngest daughters to private French high schools in Saigon. I attended the well-known Marie Curie French High School and was among the top students in my class. My second eldest sister, Ian, had married and was already settled in Saigon. And in the same generous spirit, my parents had shown in welcoming 12 nieces and nephews. My sister invited me to stay in her home. My parents gave her rise on my behalf and they gave me some pocket money which I usually spent taking street children to a nearby noodle restaurant. My father was prou- proud of me and I tried my best to be worthy of his pride. When I was 15, I tutored several wealthy children in mathematics and used the money I was earning to give scholarships to needy high school students. I never thought of using that money for myself. Giving to those who needed it came quite naturally to me from the seeds of sharing that my parents and grandparents had sown in me. During my last year of high school, I developed a fondness for my philosophy professor, Madame Simone, who was a sincere Marxist Because of her, I had considered whether Marxism might be the way to overcome the suffering and injustice I saw everywhere. But I saw so many North Vietnamese fleeing to the South, and I knew that if they were abandoning their homes and belongings to escape from communism, there must be something about it they feared or hated. I also remembered my father's arrest when I was seven. And all the killing. The French had arrested and shot those who resisted them, and the communists were no better. How could the communists liquidate the 100 people who had been imprisoned with my father, including my teacher's husband, our neighbor, and a simple clerk in the town hall? A policy that did not respect human life planted grave doubts in me. I remember my parents saying to us, Do not buy prawns today. Yesterday, the corpse of nationalist soldiers killed by the communists were floating in the river. My family knew that prawns fed on the swollen corpse. The dead always seemed to be poor farmers who had been drafted into the army or simple employees of the local administration. It was obvious that guns would not help the poor or liberate the country from oppression. It was clear that death and destruction were not solving anything. The men who killed the nationalist soldiers And the soldiers themselves were all poor farmers, victims of society's ignorance and injustice. I started to think deeply about justice and about Vietnamese society. I wanted to find a better way than violence to have those who were oppressed. Like most Vietnamese, I was raised Buddhist but growing up, I never met a good Buddhist teacher. During the resistance against the French, many bright Buddhist monks and nuns in South Vietnam were jailed or killed for supporting the resistance. The monks at most temples in my home province, Binh Tre, were not deep practitioners. They just chanted at funerals and received donations It seemed to me that they were more concerned about death than life. In 1957, when I was 19, two excellent Buddhist monks came to Ben City. Both had studied at the An Quang Pagoda in Saigon, and both gave beautiful, moving discourses. I was in Saigon when they arrived, and I remember father writing, your mother and I received the five precepts from the two wonderful monks and I want you and the rest of the family to receive the precepts from them too. Because I had met only chanting priests, I resisted and tried to ignore my father's wish. But I did agree to meet the monks when I came back to Bin Tre in summer. When I met the elder of the two monks, I asked him a number of questions, and his answers were vague and unsatisfying. Then he told me, Young lady, I am really quite busy. Can you discuss these matters with Tai Teng Tu? Everyone had been praising this elder monk, but when I met Tai Teng Tu, I found him to be much more impressive. He answered all my questions thoroughly and in a most gentle way. After seeing Thầy Teng several times, I asked if I could receive the five precepts as my father had wished. To my surprise, he said, I don't think so. It would be better to wait. You are a strong young woman and study and understanding the precepts more thoroughly. I suggest you take the time to study and understand the precepts more thoroughly before receiving them. So during the next year, I studied about Buddhism and the precepts as much as I could. Sometimes, I would drive two hours by motorbike to hear one lecture. Then, in December 1958, I formally received the five precepts from Thay Thanh Tu, Since the time of the Buddha, these vows have remained the most basic statement of Buddhist morality. Not to kill, steal, commit adultery, lie, or take intoxicants. Thầy Thanh Tu gave me the Buddhist name, Diệu Hong Wonderful Emptiness. Vietnamese people praise the Bodhisattva Avalokitesvara as a wonderful cloud who protects people from the hot sun. And the Tengdu had wanted to give me the name Diệu Văn, Wonderful Clown, because of my love for the poor. But I had often asked him questions about the meaning of emptiness, so he gave me the name Wonderful Emptiness. One time I told him, Even though Catholics are in the minority of our country, they take care of the orphans, the elderly, and the poor. The Buddha left his palace to find ways to relieve the suffering of people. Why don't Buddhists do anything to the poor and hungry? Taithengtu answered Buddhism changes people's hearts so that they can help each other in the deepest, most effective ways, even without charitable institutions. This sounded good, but I, but I did not feel satisfied. I said, I want to go to the slums to provide food for the hungry and help young delinquents get into school. He listened but said nothing. Then I told him that I wanted to become a Buddhist nun. He said, I do not think that becoming a nun would suit you because nuns have to follow the traditional discipline. You might rebel against it. He intimated that the atmosphere in some nunneries not, was not very inspiring. I asked if he could, would help me start a nunnery someday, where we could study and practice both Buddhism and social work. He smiled and nodded affirmatively. But usually when I talked with him about social work, he expressed the forked belief that it was just married work, That could never lead to enlightenment. He said work like that was only a means to get reborn into a wealthy household. No notion could have been more alien to me. I didn't care at all about rebirth, especially into a wealthy family. There was so much to do right in the present moment. Tae Teng Tu's eyes were filled with pity as he said. You need to study scriptures more and work to become enlightened. After you are enlightened, you will be able to save callous beings. The more, he said, the more uncomfortable I felt. When I introduced Thay Thanh Tu to one friend of mine, she agreed with him that my work for the poor was like holding a knife by the blade. Doing social work when you are not enlightened can destroy you. You must wait until you are enlightened before you can be of real help to the poor. Her argument was sincere and logical, but deep inside, I knew they were both wrong, at least in my case. Since the age of 14, Buying dinner for street children and sharing my earnings with poor high school students had given me more peace and joy than any efforts towards enlightenment. My friend's words reminded me of what so many young people in Marie Curie High School had said. I will join you in your work for the poor when I graduate. But when they graduated, they had to get college degrees and higher degrees. And they never had the chance to work for those we need. The enlightenment my, f- my friend described was a kind of PhD we could seek endlessly while refusing to have those right in front of us. So I continued to study Buddhism without any enlightenment. I read beautiful texts But I felt as though I was standing in front of a steep mountain with no way of climbing up. The monks and nuns told us to release our anger, for example, because life is an illusion. But they never told us how to do it. For me, life was not an illusion. The injustice and the suffering of life in the slums were very real and I wanted to learn how to cope with these realities, not deny them. Many years later, when I finally had a chance to study Buddhism in death, I learned that the Buddha did not teach that life is an illusion in the way that those monks and nuns believed. He taught that our perceptions about life are often inaccurate, because they are conditioned by incomplete or superficial knowledge gained from our past experiences. The practice of meditation teaches us to be humble about our perceptions and to look more deeply into things in order to be closer to their reality. If we are too sure of our perceptions, when things turn out to be different, we will suffer. And a shock like that can cause us to say that life is illusory. Many nuns and monks told me that if I practiced diligently, I could be reborn as a man in my next life. Then, in another dozen lives, if you continue to make effort, you can become a bodhisattva, and a long time later, a Buddha. They explained to me that a Buddha was not a god, that anyone could become enlightened, but their description of enlightenment as a state with miraculous powers sounded irrelevant to me, and also discriminatory against women. I did not want to become a man, or even a Buddha. I just wanted to have the children whose suffering was so real. I asked Tai Thanh tu if he agreed that it was impossible for women to become enlightened. And he smiled, trying not to hurt me. Later, he told me that there were more problems in nunneries than in monasteries because women's karma is heavier than men's. For years, I thought about that. And now, I realize, what he meant was that men's and women's psychologies are different. Women may raise difficult issues in an agitated way while men keep their problems to themselves. But we both have problems. And we both have to work steadily to transform our suffering. If this transformation was what the Buddhists meant by enlightenment, I could appreciate its practical value. See you in Chapter 3. Learning True Love by Sister Chen Khong Chapter 3 Science and Social Work My father wanted me to become a pharmacist because it was a prestigious occupation and a way to earn a good living honestly in our developing country. I did not want to study pharmacology, but as I wanted to please him, I proposed a compromise. I would not become a pharmacist, but I would study science and obtain a university degree. I only did this out of love for my father. My boyfriend, Nguyễn offered to study pharmacology and become a pharmacist in my place, but I thought that would make sense only if he also shared my interests in Buddhism and social work. He respected these pursuits of mine, but he never joined me in any social work projects or Buddhist discourses urged by requests to help those in the slums, I missed two consecutive appointments with Ka, and the following week, he did not show up for our date. Slowly, our love faded, and I knew it could not be rekindled. Deep inside, I knew I had to follow the footsteps of the Buddha and leave my dear friend behind. In September 1958, I enrolled in the Faculty of Science at the University of Saigon. In chemistry, we spent hours mixing chemicals and watching their reactions in beakers, which was not at all engaging for me. In math, we spent weeks learning differential equations and other things that seemed so remote. But in biology, we went into the forest to observe trees and plants and we sailed to beautiful islands to learn about corals, rocks, fish, and other wonderful living things. So I decided to major in biology. I did well on my exams and was invited to serve as lab assistant to Professor Fan Hoang Ho, whose specialty was marine algae. Professor Ho was a kind and excellent mentor. And to show my gratitude towards him, I agreed to do research on freshwater algae. Regularly, he would ask, How is your work? Have you found some new algae? And I would say, Yes, I will show it to you tomorrow. Then in the evening, I would go to the lab, stay up late looking into the microscope, draw new algae, and comment on them. I did not have the heart to tell him how little I really cared about algae. What really inspired me was working in the slums. I found a, a poor area of Saigon, only five blocks from the university, in an abandoned French cemetery behind the Kuok Tang Theater. And I went there four or five times a week. Each family there built a roof of scrap materials over a tomb, creating a world hut about two meters square. Between the tom huts were muddy paths bubbling with microbes that bred tuberculosis. Every noon break, as soon as I finished my lab work, I would run to the slum, spend a few hours with my new friends, and then run back to the school. Sometimes, my younger sister Tang would accompany me, and occasionally some other university friends joined me as well. But most of the time I went alone. I never felt tired doing this work. It was a joy to be able to help. I continued my university studies only to please my parents and my professor. My biggest question was always, how can I bring happiness to these children? I knew that if I went to the slums as a middle-class young woman, The people there would know I did not belong to their world and they would not trust me. They might even think to con me. So I always went wearing a frayed dress, pretending that I had a relative living there. Like, do you know my Uncle Ba, the pedicab driver? Then I would sit and listen to people talk about their hardships and think of ways to help them. Most of the parents in the slum were unemployed and often sick. Some of the women were pregnant by men who had abandoned them. One project I started was giving rice scholarships to orphans and children of single parents. Another was setting up a daycare center. I encouraged five young mothers to retain their childcare so the other four could go to work. I later discovered that this is called social work. But at the time, I did not know I was a social worker and no one in the slum had any such idea. To them, I was just a helpful student and the niece of a pedicab driver and this was exactly what I wanted. The adults played cards and I suspected that when they got hungry They would go out pickpocketing. When I asked them, What kind of work did you do? They would reply, I have headaches all the time. I cannot work. When I asked, How do you have money to feed your families? They answered, We borrow it at a high interest rate. When I asked, Why don't your children go to school? They responded, they don't have birth certificates. In Vietnam at that time, public schools were free. But in order to enroll, a child had to show his or her birth certificate. I researched how to obtain birth certificates and found out that if you did not apply for one at the time of your child's birth, you had to fill out an application and pay a penalty at the police station. The officer there would ask a number of questions, complete your file and send it to the district center, which in turn would send it to the central court. Six months later, you would be called into the court, and you would have to bring two witnesses who could confirm that your child was born on the day you said. For the poor, this process was far too costly and cumbersome. And few slum residents even considered doing it so I decided to intervene. A friend of mine invited a young judge to come to the summit set up a court right there and on the spot the judge issued a birth certificate at no charge to anyone who came forward and had two witnesses to confirm the day his or her child was born. My friends and I had already filled in many of their applications in advance, and eventually hundreds of children were able to go to school. But not all of the children in the Kuoktang Tang slum received birth certificates, so I began teaching them myself under the shade of a tree. I knew that their parents depended on them to earn little money selling newspapers or sweets, So I had to find a way for them to have scholarships to help out their parents. I began to think of ways to involve people outside the slums. I knew that the well-to-do had little occasion to think of the poor. So I began planting seeds of generosity in them by asking each to give one handful of rice per day for poor children. I started with my own extended family and my colleagues and friends in the university. I gave each of them a box and said, Think of me as a small bird. Every day when you cook rice, please take one handful and put it in this box for me, so that I can give it to the poor. In this way, friends and family contributed enough rice to feed many children and adults. One friend commented, You are talented in math and science. Why don't you work extra time as math teacher and buy rice with the money you earn? She didn't understand that for me the work of sowing seeds of generosity in the hearts of friends who rarely thought of the poor was more important. Gradually, with the support of many donors, my friends and I were able to collect 250 kilograms of rice each month to give to the parents of the slum children in exchange for permission to teach the children. My heart would fill with happiness every time I came into the area and heard the children call to each other, Big Sister Tư, my nickname, has arrived. Let's go to class. I would sing folk songs and tell the children stories about the Buddha, emphasizing that he was a person, not a god, and that everyone could become enlightened just like him. Slowly, the children came to love me as a big sister, and they began to believe in themselves. The classes were always joyful and engaging, and the children learned to read and write and sing traditional Vietnamese songs. One day I realized that I could help unemployed adults start their own small businesses just as my mother had done years earlier. I knew that it would take some money to get started and also knew that if I had asked if I asked relatives or other friends for help they would refuse or give just once. So I asked many people to contribute a very small amount, one dong, about 10 cents each month. They said, it's so little. But I said, giving one dong regularly is a great gift. I approached a wealthy friend of my family's who was usually not generous. And she was pleased to give one dong a month. Then I asked my her family members and even her servant to each give one dong a month and they too were happy to practice generosity so inexpensively. I told I told them stories about the life in the slums and they listened with tender hearts. I knew that I was sowing seeds of generosity in her mind in their minds and hearts that would one day bear fruit. Others, even children, joined me in the work of collecting funds to help the poor begin small businesses. I knew that if I just gave the money to the people in the slum, they might squander it on rice, wine, or gambling. So I set up a system of loans. I went with each new entrepreneur. To the market to find the equipment to get started, and then I loaned him or her the amount needed to purchase it purchase it, for example, I asked one man, "Would you like to sell ice cream?" The man who usually gambled all day said, "Ice cream, you need five hundred dong about fifty dollars to buy a metal box to carry the ice cream." I told him, I don't have any money myself, but I can borrow it for you if you promise to pay me back one dong every day from your sales. Together, we went to the wholesale market and bought a big tin container. Every night when he came back from selling ice cream, he put one dong aside to pay me back. One woman obtained the equipment needed to become a street vendor of bánh cuốn a light roll, crepe, and other foods. When I saw that someone was especially enterprising, I would offer a second loan to expand his or her business. In this way, I helped create many jobs, but I never gave anyone money without keeping some control. I knew I had to do that. Whenever someone repaid his debt, I used the money to help someone else start a business. At first, the people I set up in business considered me naive, but after a while, they came to love and respect me. I treated each man and woman with both gentleness and firmness, and I finally succeeded in transforming many of them. I also got involved in caring for the sick. When someone contracted tuberculosis, for example, I would drive him to the hospital on my own motorbike. As a biology lab assistant, I had come to know many first-year medical students. So when we arrived at the hospital, I could always find among the resident medical students one friend who had agreed to take care of my friends from the slums free of charge. But when these slum friends returned home, they would often become sick again. I began to realize that life in the slum was one of self-defeat and I began to think of ways to help slum dwellers move to a healthier environment. At that time in Vietnam, people had the right to clear a plot of land in the rainforest and set up a farm. I thought that I might try to obtain some land for families living in urban slums and help them set up a new life. I knew I could not force anyone to come, but I decided to begin by inviting 20 families. I could raise the money to provide farming tools and a six-month supply of food for each family. And we would set up a small model community that could inspire other poor people to do the same but the reality of the world took me elsewhere and this idea was not to be realized for many years